KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. On this MLK Day, a conversation with the keynote of the All People Celebration. We are, in fact, all in this same world house. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. More details about a lawsuit involving the public defender's office and discrimination. The idea that the county would continue to pay our taxpayer dollars and keep someone in their job who's admitted to this kind of gross, unethical misconduct is shocking to me. And again, I'm just speaking personally. A look at how composting in San Diego will work, and we'll talk about the Museum of Us. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. In honor of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., many San Diegans gathered this morning for the 35th annual All People's Celebration. This year's keynote speaker was Steve Phillips, a national political leader, best-selling author, and columnist. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority, and his latest book, How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. Midday Edition producer Andrew Bracken spoke with Phillips ahead of today's celebration, which was centered around Dr. King's words, let's build bridges, not walls. Andrew started by asking how Phillips' keynote connects to that sentiment. So one of the core messages of Dr. King that I want to lift up in our talk is from the last book that King wrote, which was called Where Do We Go From Here? And the last chapter of that book is called The World House. And so he refers to the interconnected nature of people all over the globe. And so I think this concept of bridging across borders, across boundaries, across identity to all live in, and we are in fact all in this same world house. And so that's, uh, um, I think, what I want to try to share um, in my in my remarks. And Martin Luther King Day has long been known as a day of service. I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about the meaning behind the holiday and, and how public service became such a central part of it? Yeah, I would say service and also action and activism. And so one of the speeches, one of the leaders directly who was influential in my own development was Reverend Jesse Jackson, who was with Dr. King at the time of his assassination. And we brought Reverend Jackson to speak on uh, Dr. King's birthday when I was in college. And he talked about, he had this theme of the unfinished business of Dr. King and how at his time of his death, what he was working on was the poor people's campaign. And he was really trying to bring attention to the realities of economic inequality and the imperative, the you know, moral and social imperative of trying to address and re- uh, redress poverty within this country. 
And so service, I think, is a definite aspect of it. And at the same time, I think King was fundamentally an activist and an advocate and a change agent. And so really going beyond addressing the symptoms that we face in society and looking at systemically, structurally, how do he used to talk about not just flinging coins at somebody asking for money, but actually looking at the structure of a system that produced people who have to ask for money. And so that, I think, is the ultimate testament and legacy uh, that King left us. And now we have a new Congress that's just gotten underway. And it got started just hours after the second anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. How do you see the health of our democracy two years on from that day? Well, we have a democracy, so that's a good starting point, which was not a given on January 6th when you had the not only the sitting president of the United States, but the majority of the members of the Republican Party voting to, in essence, overthrow the elected government of the United States of America, voting to reject the electors that had been affirmed by 50 governors, Republican and Democrat, and trying to block the peaceful transfer of power, which is a cornerstone of democracy. And that was very much in play on January 6th, uh, 2021. The good news is that didn't happen. The bad news is how close we came to it happening. And then uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, Senator Warnock, has offered up the juxtaposition. Um, Reverend Warnock is the literal successor to Martin Luther King at Ebenezer Baptist Church. He preaches from Ebenezer, and that was where Dr. King uh, was the, the minister. And he talks about, are we going to be a January 5th country or a January 6th country? And on January 5th, the country sent to the United States Senate uh, successor to Dr. King, African-American, and uh, and the first Jewish senator, uh, uh, certainly from the South and from Georgia, in terms of uh, John Ossoff. And then on January 6th, we had the insurrection. And so with this choice is before us as a country. And so I say all that to say is that the state of the democracy is fragile, but it exists. And so that's encouraging, but it's fragile. So we have to remain extraordinarily vigilant and active to defend it and protect it and expand it. And on that fragility you just mentioned. We've heard discussion recently about how our country may be headed toward a civil war. But in your most recent book, How We Win the Civil War, you make a, a much different argument, don't you? Right. I argue that the Civil War never ended and that the Confederates and their ideological and genealogical heirs have never stopped fighting the essential cause of the Civil War, which is the existential struggle over is this going to be a multiracial, multicultural democracy, or is this going to be primarily a country for white people? And that battle continues to this day. And what I try to show in my book is that there has been a consistent and unrelenting effort to preserve that dynamic and that framework for the country, starting with 1877 Hayes-Tilden Compromise, where the a contested presidential election was decided by agreeing to give the South back to the slaveholders and to pull out the Northern troops that were protecting people of color, which in essence reinstated legalized racial segregation within the South for almost a hundred years. And so we've only even been a democracy since 1965 when the Voting Rights Act was passed. And that's been continuously under assault from those who want this to be, as I described it, trying to make America white again. 
And last year, the Biden administration made a strong push for new voting rights legislation, but it ultimately stalled in Congress. Where does that effort stand today, and where do you see it going from here? Well, I think it's we're not doing enough, and we're not doing enough with enough urgency and intensity. So Biden has done some good things in terms of using the bully pulpit to give speeches and draw attention to the challenge of defense of our democracy and to the threats of our democracy. And so that's been useful and helpful. But as I was commenting to people, if it is in fact as existential a battle as he has said in his speeches, which it is, shouldn't we be fighting harder? We can't limit our efforts to being able to pass a single piece of legislation in a body that has, you know, tepid at best support for expanding voter uh, voter participation. So we, at every different level, we need to be active. And I think the president and all people who have any kind of leadership platform should be aggressive and active. Yeah, I think we need to have a million precinct captains in this country who are promoting democracy and talking to their neighbors on the regular, making sure people are registered to vote, making sure they get out and actually vote. And on President Biden, in progressive political circles, you're hearing a lot of discussion on one central question, and that is, will he run again in 2024 or not? I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, but also, if he doesn't, who are some of the faces that you have your eye on who may be looking to run? I hope Biden does run. I feel that the damage to the country done by the prior president is going to take longer than four years to clean up. And I think they are doing a pretty good job of putting the government back together again and making it function from people who are basically assailing the government. He has a demonstrated a breadth of coalition that would, um, I think, be formidable electorally in 2024. But I also feel that there does need to be a healthy and constructive debate within the Democratic Party around priority and direction and strategies in terms of what the right way to move forward. You know, I look at, you know, people, you know, like Cory Booker, who he ran in 2020 in terms of really has the breadth of communication skills to be able to communicate with a lot of people in business and the more moderate sector, but also to tie today's current issues to the historic civil rights issues, put them in the context of the struggle for racial justice and inspire people to be uh, more uh, dedicated and committed. I still think that uh, someone like Stacey Abrams has great potential and talent and leadership within this country and personifies the new model of leadership, both substantively and symbolically in a country where every single president has been a man and 45 of them have been white men to have somebody like Stacey Abrams, who both comes from, understands, and organizes in communities of color and among women, et cetera. And regardless of whether Biden decides to run or not, there is a good chance that the Democratic primary will look much different than in the past. There's an effort to replace the first state on the Democratic primary calendar, Iowa, and replace it with South Carolina. How would that impact not only progressive political power, but also our democracy at large? It was a very encouraging and long overdue step that in a country that is 40 plus percent people of color and a party that is nearly half people of color to be having the most important and inaugural electoral contest be in a state that's 90 percent white is not good politics and it's not good policy. So then all the candidates have to understand and appeal to the issues and the constituencies of what is objectively a fairly narrow slice of the actual population and definitely a fairly narrow slice of the progressive coalition. 
So if, in fact, they go to South Carolina, which is where the Democratic Party consists of 60% African-Americans, the issues and the priorities that are going to have to be mastered, as well as the skills and the language and the messages that can speak to that community, will be very different. And that will be very important for Democrats to have the full electoral strength that they're going to need and that they had particularly during Obama's candidacies where you had very strong and enthusiastic turnout of African-Americans. So it's an extraordinarily significant and promising development. And in June of this year, a final report from California's reparations task force is expected to lay out what reparations may look like for African-Americans in the state. I'm curious what you think about the effort and if you see it in any way as a continuation of Dr. King's legacy. Oh, it very much is so. And I'm really glad that they're doing it. And I'm really glad they're advancing even beyond the policy prescriptions themselves, but the question itself. And so I try to address this in the epilogue of my book, um, where I talk about a new social contract in that, uh, and I reference there Dr. King's message and focus on poverty and pursuing a guaranteed income. So there is a national movement now around mayors for a guaranteed income launched by former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs. And there's dozens of cities across the country, including um, San Diego, which are doing guaranteed income programs that are manifestations of King's policies, prescription, and vision. And so that is going to be a critical piece. And so fundamentally, what I try to address in my what I try to say in my book is that beyond and let's not get tripped up around the specifics of any particular policy manifestation. But really, the fundamental question is, what is owed? And there's an article in the, in the New York Times by Nicole Hannah-Jones after George Floyd was killed with that theme of what is owed in a country where the wealth was created on land taken from the indigenous communities and worked to become quite profitable in terms of the cotton that was you know, grown and then sold by African-American slaves, but they were not able to participate in that wealth creation. And so there is a, in a fair and just and democratic society, we would grapple with that question around what is owed, particularly given the persistent inequality that has been an outgrowth of that history of exploitation. So California can help to focus and galvanize the conversation in this country. And it is very much a long overdue conversation and is absolutely a continuation and an extension of the work that Dr. King was doing, which it says at his death was working in the Poor People's Campaign. That was Steve Phillips, who gave the keynote address this morning at the 35th annual All People Celebration, honoring the legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He was speaking to Midday Edition producer Andrew Bracken. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Court transcripts show San Diego County Public Defender Randy Mize admitted under oath last month and he signed off on an investigative report knowing it contained false statements. KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma has more. 
Mize's admission came during the December trial of former Deputy Public Defender Zach Davina's successful wrongful termination lawsuit against the county. He was, of course, under oath, under penalty of perjury, and he acknowledged that when he signed and approved the official investigation report into Zach's complaints of discrimination and harassment, that when he signed it, he knew it was false. Davina's lawyer, Chris Ludmer, says that investigative report was the result of the Public Defender Office's HR probe into Davina's firing. The Superior Court jury sided with Davina in his case and awarded him $2.6 million in damages. The trial transcripts show Mize repeatedly acknowledged he knew that four of the five supervisors who sat on Davina's tenure review panel had made false statements. Panel members had known of a complaint Davina took to a colleague after appearing before the review panel, but they told the investigator they hadn't. According to the transcript, Ludmer then asked, and you didn't do anything to correct them, did you? Mize answered, I missed it. Ludmer follows up with, you missed something that directly bared on one of Mr. Davina's specific complaints of retaliation? Mize responded, I did. He also acknowledged reading the full investigative report before signing it. Mize did not respond to a request for comment, neither did the four tenure review panel supervisors, Mignon Hiltz, Frank Barone, Sherry Stone, and Joe Super. Davina, who is gay, says a supervisor on the tenure review panel opened by asking him whether he was too flamboyant and animated and if that hurt his clients. And it became very clear it wasn't a question of what is actually professional or what is actually right as a public defender, but why aren't you acting straight? Right after the tenure review session ended, Davina complained to fellow deputy public defender Jessica Enriquez that he felt discriminated against and harassed. Mize and the other supervisors labeled Davina's complaint a breach of confidentiality, according to court records. Mize acknowledged during the trial that the so-called breach had been discussed with those same panel members at a meeting on November 2, 2020, and they were angry that Davina disclosed what happened at his tenure review. But that's not what four of the five review panel members told the HR investigator. They said they never knew that Davina had complained to Enriquez about his treatment. Ludmer has harsh words for Mize. Any senior public official doing something like that should immediately lose their job. The idea that the county would continue to pay our taxpayer dollars and keep someone in their job who's admitted to this kind of gross, unethical misconduct is shocking to me. Ludmer urged the County Board of Supervisors to take strong action. I hope that the Board of Supervisors will conduct an internal investigation, preferably by some outside law firm that is not tainted, and can hopefully make some findings and conclusions and recommendations on what should happen not only to Mr. Mize, but the entire senior leadership of that public defender's office. KPBS reached out to the county administration and supervisors for comment. They said the matter will soon come to the board in closed session, and so it's inappropriate to comment at this time. 
That was KPBS investigative reporter Amita Sharma with her latest on the case of Zach Davina, the former San Diego public defender who recently won his wrongful termination case against San Diego County and was awarded $2.6 million in damages. And Amitha joins us now and opens her reporter's notebook. Hi, Amitha. Hi, Jade. You've been writing about this case since November. Can you take us back a bit? What happened? Why was Zach Davina disciplined at work? Well, first, a little context, Jade. Davina is gay, as you heard in the report. When Davina went before his tenure review panel in September of 2020, he says that one of the first questions he was asked, as you heard, was whether he thought he was too animated and flamboyant and whether that hurt his clients. He said that that was basically the line of questioning that persisted throughout his review. So afterward, he was so upset that he went to a colleague and he confided in her and he complained that he felt discriminated against, that he felt harassed against. That colleague, a few days later, took what Davina had told her to her supervisor. And as it happens, it's that supervisor who happened to sit on Davina's tenure review panel, and she is the one who asked Davina the question about being too flamboyant and being too animated. And that supervisor went to her fellow supervisors and Mize and complained that, quote, Davina had breached the confidentiality of his tenure review panel. In addition to being told he wasn't a good fit for the office, that was one of the reasons outlined on why he was fired. It was because of that so-called breach. The, and then just to rewind a little bit, the supervisors on that tenure review panel and public defender Mize discussed Davina's breach on November 2nd, 2020, and they were upset about it. But when that HR investigator interviewed them days later and asked them if they had known about the breach, four of the five supervisors said they did not. Those were the false statements that went into the investigative report. Mize read that investigative report. He made suggested changes, but he didn't correct those statements and he signed the document. He admitted on the stand he knew the statements were false and signed the document anyway. I mean, what happens next? Is there any indication these supervisors will be disciplined or or fired? Well, the county administration has mostly been silent. I reached out to them late last week. Um, The new chairperson, Nora Vargas, Supervisor Nora Vargas, her office did get back to me as well as the county administration. And they said that this is a closed session item and that it would just be inappropriate for them to comment. I want to add, though, that it is the chief administrative officer at the county. Her name is Helen Robbins-Meyer. She's the one who has authority to hire the county public defender. I feel like I should say that the people of the county are in a bad box right now. The Board of Supervisors and the administration have to decide whether they're okay with public defender Mize signing a document he knows contains false statements. They have to decide if they're okay with four supervisors in the public defender's office making false statements to an HR investigator. And if they are, then they have to be okay with the message the public 
just might take away from inaction on this issue. The message being, this is how we roll here. And that deputy public defenders, if you complain and it's hurtful to management, we will find a way to get rid of you. So the county, I'm guessing, is gaming this out right now. If you do nothing, it can have a pretty insidious effect on the county's reputation. Hmm. Now, there's another outstanding lawsuit against the public defender's office. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So that lawsuit is by another former deputy public defender, Michelle Reynoso. The office fired her around the same time as Davina. Her case is similar to Davina's. She's alleging that she was penalized by the office for her work with Black Lives Matter during her own time. Like Davina, she complained about comments that uh, Supervisor Sherry Stone made to a colleague that she considered racist. Um, Stone sat on Reynoso's tenure review panel. Stone sat on Davina's tenure review panel. The interesting part about this is that several of the jurors in Davina's case said after the verdict that they didn't find any of the county witnesses to be credible. That poses a huge problem for the county. If they move ahead with Reynoso's case, which is set to go to trial next month, the county's going to have to call some of the same witnesses that Davina's jury thought lied on the stand. So as I said, the county is in a bad box right now. I mean, this really speaks to a cultural issue within the public defender's office, right? Well, that's what deputy public defenders say. Um, They say that this kind of thing has been going on for a long time. Um, You know, if you complain in an effort to improve the work environment in the office, then it's not taken in the spirit it's intended that deputy public defenders are then on the receiving end of some retaliation. This is something I know you'll be following. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. Amitha, thank you. Thank you, Jade. This Wednesday, some San Diegans will put out their shiny new green bins, and for the first time, they will include food waste. It's part of the city's new organics recycling program, which began rolling out last week with the delivery of thousands of new kitchen pails and green bins to local residents. The program, which is mandated by the state of California, is part of an effort to combat climate warming carbon emissions. I spoke with Matthew Clary, assistant director of the city of San Diego's Environmental Services Department about it. I started by asking what can now be recycled by the city of San Diego? I think the best way to think about it is if it grows, it goes in the organic bin. Uh, So anything that was once alive, which includes uh, non-treated wood waste, uh, fruit, vegetable peels, coffee grounds, and filters, uh, plate scrapings, including cooked foods, food-soiled paper napkins, uh, plant clippings, or other yard trimmings can all go in the green bin. There are lots of items now that are packaged in compostable material. I'm thinking about some produce bags, coffee filters, 
uh, and takeout containers. But those those can't just be put in backyard compost bins. They require industrial composters. So will those types of things all be compostable through this new program? Unfortunately, they won't. Uh, anything labeled compostable isn't compatible with our processing system, um, especially plastic bags that some folks might want to use uh, to line their green bins with or their, or their kitchen pails with. Those plastic bags labeled organic don't compost at the same rate that our, uh, our facility processes food waste. So it'll end up with um, um, contaminants in the uh, finished product that we want to stay away from. And how should the residents who have the new bins dispose of their food waste? Uh, should it be bagged up or just put in the bin? Just put in the bin, free with no bags, um, especially no bags that are labeled compostable, as I mentioned um, earlier. Um, uh, it's best to layer your organic waste um, so it prevents uh, the bin from getting um, yucky, for lack of a better word. Uh, if you put some yard trimmings or some plant tripping, uh, clippings in the bottom of the bin uh, and then layer it with food waste and then layer it with another uh, layer of uh, plant or organic yard trimmings, um, it'll keep the bin clean, which is what we really want um, our residents to be um, aware of so that the bin doesn't get uh, yucky and, and gross. Will people then be required to participate in this program? Everyone living in California, uh, this is a California state law, which mandates that all residents and businesses reduce organic waste, uh, which includes food scraps and yard trimming sent to landfills. Um, and this is one of the easiest things we can do to curb climate change. So um, all residents will be required to participate. What will the city be doing to ensure people participate in the program? Well, there will be a, an enforcement component. Uh, we, The city will start with an education first component of enforcement. And as we move further into the future, there will be enforcement actions taken for, you know, egregious offenders. But most immediately, the city will be participating in a uh, education first approach. And how will you know if people aren't participating? Uh, we'll be doing bin checks. We'll be walking neighborhoods and looking in um, uh, refuse bins and um, uh, determining if there's uh, any organic waste that is that's in those black bins. Is there a fine? Uh, initially, no. As I stated, the city is going to take an education-first approach, but the regulations uh, imposed by uh, CalRecycle will um, require fines uh, effective uh, beginning in 2024 if uh, people don't comply. You know, one thing I thought about is these bins full of rotting food, possibly attracting animals like raccoons. Uh, is that expected to be a problem? We don't expect it to be a problem. Uh, the other thing the city has done uh, once this program is rolled out, the bins will be collected weekly. Uh, for those residents who currently receive organic waste collection, it's 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 every other week, uh, which is similar to the Blue Bin Recycling Program. Uh, but we are moving toward weekly collection for these um, green bins uh, to prevent any sort of vectors from contaminating the bins. And, you know, some homes already have green bins. Can they continue to use those for all of their organic recycling or are there special bins designated for food? No, they absolutely can use those bins. And uh, for those 40,000 homes that currently have green organic bins uh, and serviced by the city of San Diego, um, they will know when to start organic recycling when they get their kitchen waste bin, uh, their food pail. 
And once they receive that food pill, that will be the sign for them to go ahead and put all food waste uh, into that green bin and to inform them that the collection will move from every other week to weekly. Does this program affect everyone in the city, whether you live in a house, multifamily unit, or work at a business? It does. It affects all residents and businesses throughout the city. And how much more organic waste is the city expecting to compost as a result of this program? Well, the city of San Diego currently composts about 35,000 tons a year, which is collected by our collection services division. Uh, initially, once the rollout is complete, we are anticipating to triple that and um, compost about 90,000 total tons. So what investments has the city made in its composting facilities in order to recycle all this additional waste? Yeah, it's a great question. So the investments the city has made in the Miramar Greenery, um, we, we've actually been composting food since 2016. And we we do that with a process um, called uh, uh, covered aerated static pile system. And that breaks down food waste uh, in a covered and controlled system. Uh, the process infuses air and maintains a specific moisture content to break down and process organic waste into nutrient-rich compost. Uh, and the finished product is a nu- nutrient-rich soil amendment that is produced without the byproduct of methane. So the city currently processes about 90,000 tons of organic waste um, annually. And um, we are in the process of constructing a uh, organics processing facility, which will be a um, a facility that will take and process uh, organic waste and uh, move that material through those covered aerated static piles more efficiently and effectively. Um, That project is expected to be completed in 2024, but until then, uh, the city has capacity at its current greenery uh, to process the anticipated organic waste. Mm. And as we mentioned, the organic waste recycling program is part of a a state law, Senate Bill 1383, which was supposed to go into effect at the beginning of last year. Why did it take an additional year to begin rolling out the program? Well, uh, CalRecycle and the city of San Diego have um, been in constant contact since this um, uh, regulation has has been put into place. Uh, CalRecycle is fully aware of the hurdles that the city of San Diego faced, which included not having all of its residents uh, subscribe to the organic waste program. Um, Additionally, the city had to purchase um, additional vehicles uh, to collect the waste. We had to uh, hire sanitation drivers to drive those vehicles. And we had to put a contract in place to purchase those additional containers that were uh, busy rolling out this week. CalRecycle is aware of these obstacles and many other jurisdictions throughout the, the state are having similar issues. Uh, and because we've, we've been in contact with them and because we've been working with them, um, they're, they're not concerned about uh, the 2022 deadline, the January 1st. That, that's when the regulations took effect and enforcement begins in 2024. So we, we're firmly in the implementation phase um, and we're, we're, we're well ahead of the uh, rollout schedule for for city homes. The the biggest issue we had was um, the purchase and, and receiving trucks. We purchased our trucks in July of 2021, and we're just now starting to receive those trucks to support this program. So the city of San Diego is competing with all the other jurisdictions and all the other waste collectors 
who had to go out and purchase similar vehicles to do this work. Um, and it's taken quite a bit longer to receive those vehicles than we had anticipated. And coming back to the process itself, the city says this is the single fastest and easiest way to combat climate change. What is the individual impact of recycling food waste? Anything sent to the landfill and anything allowed to decompose in the landfill um, creates methane gas. And methane gas is one of the largest uh, contributors to global warming and greenhouse gases. Um, So anything and anything uh, omitted from disposal to the landfill will help prevent methane gas from getting into the atmosphere. And how will the city be tracking the impact of this organic recycling program on carbon emissions? It's a good question, Jada. I don't know that we've discussed that at this point. Um, I, I can't answer that question. Okay. The rollout continues into the coming months. How can people find out when they'll receive their bins and organic waste recycling will start in their neighborhood? Great question, Jade. So uh, residents can go to organicwasterecyclesd.org. And on that website, there is a schedule. So if you are normally, if you normally get your trash collected on a Wednesday, uh, the, the rollout for green bins will be this January and February. And if you normally get your uh, trash collected on a Tuesday, uh, the rollout for green bins will be in July and August. I've been speaking with Matthew Cleary, Assistant Director of the City of San Diego's Environmental Services Department. Matthew, thank you. Thank you, Jade. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. The Museum of Man became the Museum of Us in 2020, and now it's reimagining one of its core exhibits. Race. Are we so different? The goal is to shape the new exhibit through the perspectives of our local communities, so the museum is inviting the public to share their thoughts on the current exhibit. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with the museum's Director of Development and External Communications, James Haddon, and exhibit developer Melinda Barnadas about the changes. James, to begin with, I just wanted to ask you about the name change for the museum. I know it hasn't been that recent, but what prompted the name change and what's been the response to that? We announced the new name in August of 2020, so we really had a chance to um, to get a good feeling about um, how the community feels on it. But really, the idea of a name change has been around for decades, even back in the 1990s. There was a lot of input from the community that said this kind of idea of man being the proxy word for mankind was a very gendered and antiquated use of the language and people didn't feel included with an institution with that kind of name. So there had been discussion for decades and when the pandemic happened, one of our goals um, as an institution was that we wanted to emerge from the pandemic as a better version of ourselves our identity should really be matching the work that we're doing. And this old name no longer matches what, um, what we're doing as far as an institution. And so it's, it's time to make the change. And we've really had a really great response from the, from the public. And give us a little history of the museum in terms of when it was started and how it was kind of started and what was the original mission statement for it? The museum was founded in 1915 for the 
um, Panama, California exposition. So it was always housed in the California building here in Balboa Park, and it was always an anthropology museum. And so the way I tend to describe it in my mind is that as an anthropology museum, it really was taking an academic approach at looking at cultures, especially ancient cultures, and really kind of producing exhibits that were three-dimensional ethnographies of those ancient cultures often. So it's a very academic approach to that. And those exhibits were really developed by curators who were not, for example, descendant members of those communities. So white, often male, academically trained folks who were looking back or at other cultures and producing exhibits and programs around those. So that's really what the the museum did for decades. And has the museum's original mission changed in any way? Well, our mission officially changed in 2012. And so the board voted for a new mission. Then there was a strategic plan developed. And the mission in 2012 was officially voted on to be inspiring human connections by exploring the human experience. First of all, we really want to look at issues and stories across cultures and time that really impact all of us on our day-to-day lives. And a really a special kind of focus is that is that we're really looking at the stories from um, communities that have been overlooked or silenced in the past. So we don't focus so much on every human story. What we're really trying to look at are those stories that have been silenced or not really looked at in a truthful way in the broader dominant culture. And I want to bring Melinda into the conversation. And Melinda, first of all, tell us what you do with the museum. I am the exhibit developer. Um, and so what I do is I work with the communities in, uh, that are associated with any given exhibit that's being developed. And I learn their perspective, work together, collaborate, and we develop the content that becomes the script, the heart of what is experienced in the exhibits. The museum created a race exhibit back in 2015, and in some ways that feels like a very different time. So what was the goal of that original exhibit? The original exhibit was developed by the American Anthropological Association and the Science Museum of Minnesota. That original exhibit is telling a comprehensive story about race and how are we different. So currently, the current exhibit, to to move forward a little bit, is 2015 feels like a lifetime ago in terms of conversations around race on a local, national, and international level. So now um, we're giving it an update, and uh, one can build upon um, the different understandings about how race affects our movement in the world coming from some of these larger conversations that have evolved since 2015. You know, the exhibit does a a really good job about talking about that the concept of race is a cultural concept. Biologically, we're all the same. The gene that creates a a skin color change is, is no bigger than a gene that creates an eye color change, for example. So museum exhibits are often curated and designed by scholars and experts. But you're seeking public input on redesigning this race exhibit. So what can the public contribute that might be different? Or why do you want public input on this particular exhibit? We have not abandoned scholars and experts or the content that's in the current exhibit from the American Anthropological Association. But we are challenging the notion of who the expert is. 
So we want to include lived experiences and support them with the ideas from scholars, from artists, and experts who allow us to see and think about our shared experiences in different ways. So um, in terms of how the public can contribute, they can do that in a few different ways. Right now, through mid-February, we have public surveys and interviews that are being conducted at the museum. So if you are interested in offering in-depth feedback about our current exhibit, you can come down to the museum and see the race exhibit. And in exchange for an hour of your time and your thoughts, the museum will give you $50 and membership for a year. Alternatively, we have a five-minute visitor survey where you can anonymously contribute your thoughts on an iPad in the exhibit. And we'll give you a thank you pin for that. But both of these options are available now through mid-February, and we'll be taking that input. I will be reading that. Uh, we'll be working collaboratively with our, the community and interpreting that and supporting that with content from scholars, experts, etc. It's important to extend and engage that conversation in ways that continue to serve to be inclusive, intersectional, and reflective of what people are actually experiencing and understanding about how race affects their lives and those around them. So although the current exhibit is really clearly pointing out that race is a cultural construct, the way race affects us individually is something that continues to shift, change, and why we're developing the exhibit with public input where people have the opportunity to share their experiences with us, to be included both in the redesign and to contribute in being represented in the resulting exhibit. Well, I want to thank you both very much for talking about the Museum of Us. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Beth Accomando speaking with James Haddon and Melinda Barnatis from the Museum of Us in Balboa Park. People can make an appointment to be interviewed by the museum by emailing museum at museumofus.org. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.